0: chapter 21 of the dog Crusoe and his master this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org today's reading by alison hester of athens georgia the dog Crusoe and his master by r.m valentine chapter 21 wolves attack the horses and cameron circumvents the wolves a bear hut in which henry shines conspicuous joe and the natter list an alarm a surprise and a capture we must now return to the camp where walter cameron still guarded the goods and the men pursued their trapping avocations here seven of the horses had been killed in one night by wolves while grazing in a plain close to the camp and, on the night following, a horse that had strayed was also torn to pieces and devoured. The prompt and daring manner in which this had been done convinced the trader that the white wolves had unfortunately scented them out, and he set several traps in hope of capturing them. White wolves are quite distinct from the ordinary wolves that prowl through the woods and plains in large packs. They are much larger, weighing sometimes as much as a 130 pounds but they are comparatively scarce and move about alone or in small bands of three or four their strength is enormous and they are so fierce that they do not hesitate upon occasions to attack man himself their method of killing horses is very deliberate two wolves generally undertake the cold-blooded murder They approach their victim with the most innocent-looking and frolicsome gambles, lying down and rolling about and frisking pleasantly until the horse becomes a little accustomed to them. Then, one approaches right in front, the other in the rear, still frisking playfully until they think themselves near enough when they make a simultaneous rush. The wolf which approaches in rear is the true assailant. The rush of the other is a mere feint, Then, both fasten on the poor horse's haunches and never let go till the sinews are cut and he is rolling on his side. The horse makes comparatively little struggle in this deadly assault. He seems paralyzed and soon falls to rise no more. Cameron set his traps towards evening in a circle with a bait in the center and then retired to rest. Next morning, he called Joe Blunt and the two went off together. "'It is strange that these rascally white wolves should be so bold "'when the smaller kinds are so cowardly,' remarked Cameron as they walked along. "'So tis,' replied Joe. "'But I've seen them other chaps bold enough, too, in a prairie "'when they were in the large packs and starving.'" "'I believe the small wolves follow the big fellows and help them eat what they kill, "'though generally they sit round and look on at the killing.'" Hest, exclaimed joe cocking his gun there he is and no mistake there he was undoubtedly a wolf of the largest size with one of his feet in the trap he was a terrible looking object for besides his immense size and naturally ferocious aspect his white hair bristled on end and was all covered with streaks and spots of blood from his bloody jaws In his efforts to escape, he had bitten the trap until he had broken his teeth and lacerated his gums so that his appearance was hideous in the extreme. And when the two men came up, he struggled with all his might to fly at them. Cameron and Joe stood looking at him in a sort of wondering admiration. "'We'd better put a ball in him,' suggested Joe after a time. "'Mayhap the chain won't stand such tugs long.' True, Joe. If it breaks, we might get an ugly nip before we kill him. So saying, Cameron fired into the wolf's head and killed it. It was found, on examination, that four wolves had been in the traps, but the rest had escaped. Two of them, however, had gnawed off their paws and left them lying in the traps. After this, the big wolves did not trouble them again the same afternoon a bear-hunt was undertaken which well-nigh cost one of the iroquois his life it happened thus while cameron and joe were away after the white wolves henry came floundering into camp tossing his arms like a maniac and shouting that seven bards was down in the bush close by it chanced that this was an idle day with most of the men so they all leaped on their horses and taking guns and knives sallied forth to give battle to the bears arrived at the scene of action they found the seven bears busily engaged in digging up roots so the men separated in order to surround them and then closed in the place was partly open and partly covered with thick bushes into which a horseman could not penetrate the moment the bears got wind of what was going forward they made off as fast as possible and then commenced a scene of firing galloping and yelling that defies description four out of the seven were shot before they gained the bushes the other three were wounded but made good their retreat as their places of shelter however were like islands in the plain they had no chance of escaping the horsemen now dismounted and dashed recklessly into the bushes where they soon discovered and killed two of the bears the third was not found for some time at last an iroquois came upon it so suddenly that he had not time to point his gun before the bear sprang upon him and struck him to the earth where it held him down instantly the place was surrounded by eager men but the bushes were so thick and the fallen trees among which the bear stood were so numerous that they could not use their guns without running the risk of shooting their companion most of them drew their knives and seemed about to rush on the bear with these but the monster's aspect as it glared round was so terrible that they held back for a moment in hesitation at this particular moment henry who had been at some distance engaged in the killing of one of the other bears came rushing forward after his own peculiar manner fat is it hi de bar no go under yit just then his eye fell on the wounded iroquois with the bear above him and he uttered a yell so intense in tone that the bear himself seemed to feel that something decisive was about to be done at last Henry did not pause, but with a flying dash, he sprang like a spread eagle, arms and legs extended right into the bear's bosom. At the same time, he sent his long hunting knife down into its heart. But ruin is proverbially hard to kill, and although mortally wounded, he had strength enough to open his jaws and close them on Henry's neck. There was a cry of horror and at the same moment a volley was fired into the bear's head for the trappers felt that it was better to risk shooting their comrades than to see them killed before their eyes. Fortunately the bullets took effect and tumbled him over at once without doing damage to either of the men although several of the balls just grazed Henry's temple and carried off his cap. Although uninjured by the shot, the poor Iroquois had not escaped scatheless from the paw of the bear. His scalp was torn almost off and hung down over his eyes, while blood streamed down his face. He was conveyed by his comrades to the camp, where he lay two days in a state of insensibility, at the end of which time he revived and recovered daily. Afterwards, when the camp moved, he had to be carried, but in the course of two months, he was as well as ever and quite fond of bear hunting. Among other trophies of this hunt were two deer and a buffalo, which last had probably strayed from the herd. Four or five Iroquois were round this animal, wetting their knives for the purpose of cutting it up when Henry passed so he turned aside to watch them perform the operation, quite regardless of the fact that his neck and face were covered with blood which flowed from one or two small punctures made by the bear. The Indians began by taking off the skin, which certainly did not occupy them more than five minutes. Then they cut up the meat and made a pack of it and cut out the tongue which is somewhat troublesome as that member requires to be cut from under the jaw of the animal and not through the natural opening of the mouth one of the forelegs was cut off at the knee-joint and this was used as a hammer with which to break the skull for the purpose of taking out the brains these being used in the process of dressing and softening the animal's skin an axe would have been of advantage to break the skull but in the hurry of rushing to the attack the indians had forgotten their axes so they adopted the common fashion of using the buffalo's hoof as a hammer and the shank being the handle the whole operation of flaying cutting up and packing the meat did not occupy more than twenty minutes before leaving the ground these expert butchers treated themselves to a little of the marrow and warm liver in a raw state Cameron and Joe walked up to the group while they were indulging in this little feast. Well, I've often seen that eaten, but could never do it myself, remarked the former. No, cried Joe in surprise. Now that's uncommon curse. I've lived on raw liver and marrow bones for two or three days at a time when we was chased by the Comanche injuns and didn't dare to make a fire." and it's real good it is. Won't you try it now? Cameron shook his head. No, thank ye. I'll not refuse when I can't help it, but until then I'll remain in happy ignorance of how good it is. Well, it is strange how some folk can't abide anything in the meat way they hain't been used to. You know, I've actually known men from the cities who wouldn't eat a bit of horse flesh for love or money. Would you believe it? I can well believe that, Joe, for I have met with such persons myself. In fact, they are rather numerous. What are you chuckling at, Joe? Chuckling? If you mean be that larfin' to myself, it's cause I'm thinkin' a chap as once comed out to the prairies. Let us walk back to the camp, Joe, and you can tell me about him as we go along. I think, continued Joe, he come from Washington, but I never could make out right whether he was a government man or not. Anyhow, he was a philosopher, a natalist, I think he called himself A naturalist, suggested Cameron. Aye, that was more like it. Well... He was about six feet two in his moccasins, and as thin as a ramrod, and as blind as a bat. Leastways, he had weak eyes and wore green spectacles. He had on a gray shooting coat and trousers, and vest and cap, with red whiskers, and a long nose as red as the point as his whiskers was. Well, this gentleman engaged me and another hunt hunter to go on a trip with him to the prairies. So off we sat one fine day on three horses with our blankets at our backs. We was to depend on the rifle for victuals. At first, I thought the natalist, one of the cruelest beggars I ever went, on two long legs. For he used to go about everywhere poking pins through all the beetles and flies and creeping things he could sight eyes on and stuck em in a box. But he told me he come here a purpose to get as many of em as he could. So says I, if that's it, I'll fill your box in no time. Will ye? Says he, quite pleased like. I will, says I, and galloped off to a place where he was filled with all sorts of crawling things. So I sets to work. And whenever I see the thing crawling, I sot my foot on it and crushed it and soon filled my breast pocket. I coached a lot of butterflies, too, and stuffed them in my shot pouch and went back an hour or two and showed him the lot. He put on his green spectacles and looked at em as if he'd seen a rattlesnake. My good man, says he, you crushed em all to pieces. Well, taste is good for all that, says I. "'For somehow I'd taken it in my head "'that he'd heard of the way "'the injuns make soup of the grasshoppers "'and was wanting to try his hand at this new dish. "'He laughed when I said this "'and told me he was collecting em "'to take home to be looked at. "'But that's not what I was gonna tell you about him,' "'continued Joe. "'I was gonna tell you how we made him eat horse flesh. "'He carried a revolver, too, "'this Natalist did,' the load was shot as small as dust, the most and shoot the little buds with i seed him miss buds only three feet away with it and one day he drew it all of a sudden and let it fly at a big bum bee that was passing yelling out that it was the finest wot he'd ever seed he missed the bee of course because it was a flying shot he said but he sent the whole charge right into Martin's back. Martin was my comrade's name. By good luck, Martin had on a thick leather coat so the shot never got the length of his skin. One day, I noticed that the Natalist had stuffed some small cooks into the muzzles of all six barrels of his revolver. I wondered what they was for, but he was always doing such queer things that I soon forgot it. Maybe, I thought, just before it went out of my mind. Maybe he thinks I'll stop the pistol from going off by accident, for you must know he'd let it off three times the first day by accident, and well nigh blowed off his leg the last time. Only the shot lodged in the back of a big toad he'd just stuffed in his breeches pocket. Well, soon after we shot a buffalo bull, so when it fell, off he jumps from his hose and runs up to it. So did I, for I wasn't sure the beast was dead, and I had just got up when it rose and rushed at the night alist. list. Out of the way, I yelled, for my rifle was empty, but he didn't move, so I rushed forward and drew the pistol out of his belt and let fly in the bull's ribs just as it ran the pole man down. Martin came up that moment and put a ball through his heart, and then... We went to pick up the night list. He came to in a little, and the first thing he said was, "Where's my revolver?" When I gave it to him, he looked at it and said, with a shake of the head, "There's a whole barrel full lost." I turned out he had taken to using the barrels for bottles to hold things in, but he forgot to draw the charges, so sure enough, I had fired a charge of bumbees and beetles and small shot into the buffalo. But that's not what I was gonna tell you yet. We comes to a part of the plains where we was well nigh starved for want of game, and the night list got so thin that you could almost see through em. So I offered to kill my horse and cut it up for meat. But you never saw such a face he made. I'd rather die fust, said he, than eat it. So we didn't kill it. But I've every day Martin got a shot at a wild horse and killed it. The natalist was down in the bed at a creek, at the time groping for creepers, and he didn't see it. He'll never eat it, says Martin. That's true, says I. Let's tell him it's buffalo, says he. That'd be telling a lie, says I. So we stood looking at each other, not knowing what to do. i tell you what, cries Martin. We'll cut it up and take the meat into camp and cook it without saying a word. Done, says I. That's it, for you must know the poor creature was no judge of meat. He couldn't tell one kind from another, and he never asked questions. In fact, he never almost spoke to us all the trip. Well, we cut up the horse and carried the flesh and marrow bones into camp, taking care to leave the hoofs and skins behind, and sought to work... And roasted steaks and meadow bones. When the Natalist came back, ye should have seen the joyful face he put on when he smelt the grub, for he was all but starved out, poor critter. What have we got here? cried he, rubbing his hands and sitting down. Steaks and meadow bones, says Martin. Capital, says he, I'm so hungry. So he fell to work like a wolf. I never see the man pitch into anything like as that natalist did into that horseflesh. flesh. These are first-rate marrow bones, says he, squinting with one eye down the shin bone o' the hind leg to see if it was quite empty. Yes, sir, they is, answered Martin, as grave as a judge. Take another, sir, says I. No, thanky, says he with a sigh, for he didn't like to leave off. Well. We lived for a week on horse flesh, and first-rate living it was. Then we fell in with Buffalo, and never ran short again till we got to the settlements, when he paid us our money, and shook hands, saying we'd had a nice trip, and he wished us well. Just as we was potting, I says, Do you know what it was we lived on for a week, arter we was well-nigh starved in the prairies? What, says he, when you got yon capital marrow bones, the same says I. Yon was horse flesh, says I, and I think you'll surely never say again that it wasn't first rate living.
1: You're joking,
0: says he, turning pale. It's true, suh, as true as you're standing there. Well, would ye believe it? he turned that night did as sick as a dog on the spot what he was standing on and didn't taste meat again for three days shortly after the conclusion of joe's story they reached the camp and here they found the women and children flying about in a state of terror and the few men who had been left in charge arming themselves in the greatest haste hello something wrong here cried cameron hastening forward followed by joe what has happened eh engines coming monsieur look there answered a trapper pointing down the valley arm and mount at once and come to the front of the camp cried cameron in a tone of voice that silenced every other and turned confusion into order the cause of all this outcry was a cloud of dust seen far down the valley which was raised by a band of mounted indians who approached the camp at full speed their numbers could not be made out but they were a sufficiently formidable band to cause much anxiety to cameron whose men at the time were scattered to the various trapping grounds and only 10 chanced to be within a call of the camp However, with these ten, he determined to show a bold front to the savages, whether they came as friends or foes. He, therefore, ordered the women and children within the citadel, formed of the goods and packed of furs, piled upon each other, which point of retreat was to be defended to the last extremity. Then, galloping to the front, he collected his men and swept down the valley at full speed. In a few minutes, they were near enough to observe the enemy, and that it only numbered four Indians, who were driving a band of about a hundred horses before them, and so busy were they in keeping the troop together that Cameron and his men were close upon them before they were observed. It was too late to escape. Joe Blunt and Henry had already swept round and cut off their retreat. In this extremity, the Indians slipped from the backs of their steeds and darted into the bushes, where they were safe from pursuit, at least on horseback while the trappers got behind the horses and drove them towards the camp at this moment one of the horses sprang ahead of the others and made for the mountain with its mane and tail flying wildly in the breeze marrow bones and buttons shouted one of the men there goes dick varley's horse so it um! cried henry and dashed off in pursuit followed by joe and two others why these are our own horses said cameron in surprise as they drove them into a corner of the hills from which they could not escape this was true but it was only half the truth for besides their own horses they had secured upwards of 70 indian steeds a most acceptable addition to their stud which owing to casualties and wolves had been diminishing too much of late The fact was that the Indians who had captured the horses belonging to Pied and his party were a small band of robbers who had traveled, as was afterwards learned, a considerable distance from the south, stealing horses from various tribes as they went along. As we have seen, in an evil hour, they fell in love with Pied's party and carried off their steeds, which they drove to a pass leading from one valley to the other. Here they united them with the main band of their ill-gotten gains, and while the greater number of the robbers descended further into the plains in search of more booty, four of them were sent into the mountains with the horses already procured. These four, utterly ignorant of the presence of white men in the valley, drove their charge, as we have seen, almost into the camp. Cameron immediately organized a party to go out in search of Pierre and his companions about whose fate he became intensely anxious and in the course of half an hour as many men as he could spare with safety were dispatched in the direction of the blue mountains End of chapter 21